Today on the podcast, the former president's current legal woes. We talk with three reporters covering the many things keeping Donald Trump's lawyers very, very, very busy. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So if a lawsuit is like a chess match, then Donald Trump is like one of those guys you see in the park playing a dozen different chess matches against a dozen different opponents all at the same time. Since leaving office in January of last year, Trump has been waging a defensive legal war on numerous fronts, from Albany to Manhattan to Atlanta and points beyond. Today, we're going to analyze the progress of this legal war and learn why Trump likely has the resources to wage this war for as long as he wants to. We're joined by Bloomberg News legal reporters Eric Larson and Greg Farrell, as well as Bloomberg tax reporter Amanda Icone. And we brought Amanda on the show to talk about one of the more recent developments related to the former president. Just last month, his accounting firm Mazars essentially kicked Trump to the curb. Amanda explains what exactly Mazars did and what this means. So Mazars and his predecessors have long served as the outside accounting firm to the former president. And in February, the firm effectively fired the Trump organization as a client. Uh, the world learned of that development less than a week later when a letter from the firm was included in court filings. And uh, the letter effectively wraps up the firm's tax work for Donald Trump. But Mazars had apparently stopped preparing his personal financial statements previously, and another firm handled that work last year. But more than just formally ending its relationship with the Trump Organization, Mazars dropped another bombshell in that letter and said that a full 10 years of Trump's financial statements could no longer be relied on. And the firm said that it based that decision based off of the New York State Attorney General's investigation, plus its own internal inquiry, and, and suggested that there was new information that came to light that that required them to make this announcement. Yeah, and in your reporting, you noted that, you know, it's not super unusual for an accounting firm to fire a client, as you just mentioned, but the the move to disavow 10 years of statements, that's pretty unusual. What does that mean for the Trump organization when you all of a sudden have 10 years of transactions that can't be relied on? Right. That's a great question. Uh, you know, so again, this is incredibly rare for any client um, to have to re- effectively restate 10 years of financial reports. I mean, that's unusual whether we're not we're talking about a large publicly traded company or a closely held business like the former president's real estate empire. Uh, you know, normally um, it's possible that it could mean he's out. Um, he's vi- in violation of loan covenants or, you know, debt covenants. Um, it's possible that it could affect that those lending decisions. Um, it, it could affect insurance agreements because he's used these financial reports to secure lending and insurance. Um, it could affect his business relationship with other business partners, vendors, customers, etc. Now that I'm thinking about it, I guess what this ultimately means is that anyone who's lent him money based on what they thought his assets were they don't know if those assets are real or not. So they don't know if those loans are collateralized or not, right? Right. I mean, it depends on the work that the lender did or the insurer did. It's possible that they relied on other information or that they felt that the collateral was enough. It it really just depends on the individual circumstances. I mean, what it means for Mazars is something a little different because, you know, it's also very rare to have this sort of disavow of 10 years of your own work. And, and, And that's because of the limited 
limited nature uh, of the work that Mazars did for the Trump organization. You know, we're not talking about a financial statement audit, which is, you know, what we talk about a lot when we're talking about publicly traded companies. We, you know, the annual reports are audited. But this is just a compilation, right? This is just bringing together debts and assets and revenue and putting it into the form of a financial statement. It involves minimal work and responsibility on the part of the accounting firm. And, and, you know, ultimately, these were Donald Trump's financials. He is the one who is asserting that they are true and accurate and complete. And but at the same time, the firm has a professional obligation to tell its client if it finds anything that is obviously incorrect or obviously missing and to ask the client to fix those errors. And if the client declines, then the firm would have to withdraw from the engagement. And the wording is interesting, too, because even reviews, which is something between a compilation and an audit. So some of it is accounting parlance. Like, I mean, something they must have found something significant. Well, speaking of wording, uh, I wanted to get into one of the phrases that was used, uh, which is non-waivable conflict of interest. Uh, a lot of people saw that in the Mazar's uh, statement and thought, that's got to mean that Mazar's is cooperating with one of the many investigations uh, against Trump, which we'll get to in a moment. Is that necessarily the case or are people reading too much into that? It's... It's hard to tell. My sources were kind of all over the place on this. I mean, some suggested that, yes, perhaps this is an indication that the firm is has decided that it's in their best interest to cooperate with investigators. And others say that it's more nuanced than that, right? They, they had a responsibility to act. They could not stay silent if they genuinely found new information that caused them to think that this these these reports weren't. Um, reliable. Um, but the, you know, ultimately, the firm is really caught in the middle of all these overlapping investigations involving the former president. And, you know, at issue for investigators is whether or not he misrepresented the value of his business and his properties to tax authorities, lenders, insurance, and others. A- at the same time, Mazars, again, is a licensed CPA firm, has a professional obligation to Trump even if he's no longer a client, right? The ending this relationship doesn't end the scrutiny by investigators. And at the same time, the firm also has to defend its own work, which is still under scrutiny, right? So the firm may have decided that cooperating with the attorney general, for example, is in its best interest, but it's still possible that the firm's accountants may end up as witnesses. It's still possible that Mazars itself could face civil penalties, potentially criminal charges. Any of those scenarios would put the firm at odds with the interest of the former president. And so that's where this phrase, this conflict of interest comes from. Well, moving on to one of those uh, investigations, uh, let's move on to Eric and to the uh, attorney general of the state of New York, Letitia James. Uh, Eric, you've been covering uh, this investigation uh, from Attorney General James. What is this about and where is it at? Well, Attorney General James, she's been a thorn in Trump's side for some time, even during uh, his presidency. She was participating in a lot of lawsuits um, over his policies. So there's like a lot of bad blood sort of uh, in the that's sort of the context here. But she did start an investigation into his company. Uh, She all but promised she would do that when she was running for attorney general. So it wasn't too much of a surprise. 
but she it, she started the investigation after Trump's longtime lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, you know, testified in Congress and said that there were all sorts of financial shenanigans going on at the Trump organization, sort of said out loud what a lot of people had been suspecting over the years. So that gave her the opening to start an investigation in 2019. It wasn't made public until she had to go to court. Uh, to sue to enforce um, about seven subpoenas that she had sent that the Trump organization wasn't properly responding to or was refusing to respond to, including a, a demand for Eric Trump's testimony in a deposition. So that's when we first uh, heard about it in court. Um, she has uh, essentially won all along the way. Uh, you know, every time Trump organization has tried to stop her from getting documents she is seeking, uh, the judge has ruled uh, in her favor. And even that early deposition of Eric Trump was ordered. But but she hasn't filed any complaints or filed any charges against the organization yet, has she? Absolutely not. No, that has not happened yet. This has all been coming out in the context of her fighting Trump's effort to derail the investigation. So she's doing what she can to justify the investigation while he is accusing her of having a po political motivations here. I and mean, we all know she ran, you know, for governor briefly um, and that sort of thing. And, and, and so Trump has been making a lot out of that, saying that uh, Attorney General James is essentially corrupt, telling us, claiming that this investigation, there's nothing here. So... It's worth noting that this is totally separate from another investigation from the Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg. Uh, he sort of inherited this from his predecessor. That's a separate investigation. Um, what's the difference between these two investigations and, and what's happening with, with that very briefly? Well, sure. And actually, they're not totally separate. Um, what the, the main difference is that the attorney general's was a civil investigation. That's when that's how that started. Uh, the district attorney was is doing a criminal investigation. But um, along the way, uh, the attorney general did uncover what she described as evidence of, of criminal conduct related to these valuations of assets, whether it's insurance or bank fraud. You know, we don't know exactly what it, the evidence was that she uncovered, but it was enough that she decided to open a criminal element to her civil probe and uh, basically put two of her investigators on the DA's investigation. So, so that's the main difference. And, and uh, by the way, the Trumps have uh, tried to point to that overlap as uh, part of the reason why they should not have to participate any longer with the civil investigation, saying that they could, you know, the constitutional rights are at risk, but the courts have uh, rejected that. I see. Um, and then talking about the testimony of uh, the former president himself and his children. I think a lot of people um, are very curious about what they would have to say. Maybe there's some sort of bombshell that might come out during this testimony. But I've also heard other people say there may be a lot of pleading of the fifth in this testimony and that nothing really is going to come out of this. Is what, what, are you, what are you hearing about this? Is this going to be just, you know, uh, kind of a nothing burger to, to put a finer point on it? Well, uh, the Trump's lawyer, uh, Alina Haba, she she hasn't you know said what she is going to advise her clients to do. But I would be very surprised, actually, if they didn't plead the fifth quite a bit. Apparently, that is what Eric Trump did. 
that uh, the, the Attorney General said as much uh, in one of her court filings um, to point out the fact that uh, the Trumps are welcome to do that, that they just need to sit for the deposition like anyone else would be expected to do under a civil subpoena. So in a sense, forcing them to sit for the deposition is is kind of the, the win for the AG, although how much that does for the investigation, we may not know since the, de- the testimony won't uh, necessarily become public. Uh, Greg, do you want to chime in? And uh, here is where uh, what Eric just uh, uh, described is a, a real crucial difference between the attorney general's civil case and the Manhattan District Attorney's criminal case is that there's a lower bar for evidence in the civil case. Um, you can take, you know, if someone basically invokes their Fifth Amendment right against uh, self-incrimination, um, that can be used in a civil case as sort of evidence that, you know, they have something to hide. And it's a lower bar for getting a for win. It's not a conviction because it's not criminal. That's a really good point. Um, well, let's move on from a prosecutor who ha- seems like he sh- she has a lot of material to a prosecutor who may not have uh as much. And I'm talking about here Fonnie Willis, who is a prosecutor based in Atlanta, Georgia. Greg, you've been covering this uh, um, investigation. What's going on here? What is she investigating Donald Trump for? And why is her investigation moving so slowly? Uh, She's the district attorney of Fulton County. And uh, she's in a highly unusual place insofar as, you know, she's the one building an investigation as to whether or not you know, then President Donald Trump tried to interfere with the, you know, basically proper administration of the presidential election in Georgia in 2020. As we all know, uh, there was a, you know, on January 2nd of 2021, uh, two months after the election in which Joe Biden defeated President Trump, Trump was still trying to change the outcome in several states. And as part of his effort to basically flip the result or cancel Biden's win in Georgia, he contacted a number of officials in Georgia. Um, He wanted the U.S. attorney in Atlanta to drum up some charges uh, related to election fraud. But the U.S. attorney, who was appointed by Trump, you know, didn't see that. So he was under enormous pressure and he eventually resigned. Uh, Trump put pressure on other officials, particularly the secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, and um, had a phone call with him on January 2nd, a one-hour phone call, in which he, you know, uh, among many things, urged Raffensperger to come up with 11,780 votes, which is one more than the number of votes Trump needed to, to win the state. So that's the, the main piece of evidence that, you know, Trump wanted to interfere and somehow change or you know, defraud the voters of Georgia by, you know, uh, uh, monkeying with the, um, uh, the election results in Georgia. But Greg, as, as you mentioned, that phone call took place on January 2nd, 2021, and the district attorney uh, has only just now convened a grand jury, and the grand jury hasn't even begun hearing testimony yet. What's going on here? There's not that much evidence there. It's not clear why it's taking this so, this lo- so long. I do think, in defense of, of, of her, that she wanted to wade through most of 2021 because there were several congressional investigations into not just the January uh, 6th insurrection, but also into you know Trump's attempt to use the Justice Department to you know basically change the result of the election, both of which involved witnesses that would be of interest to her. 
So I think she uh, probably stood back a bit to see what you know would come in from that and whether or not she could get hold of it. Uh, but yes, the question remains that um, unlike the investigation Eric talked about, you know, the New York Attorney General or the Manhattan District Attorney, uh, both of which involve millions and millions of documents, the amount of evidence in this case could fit in, in you know one small filing box. It's, you know, the phone call, it's a number of other phone calls between Trump and some of his acolytes and his Rudy Giuliani, but it's just, there's not that much evidence. So it's kind of surprising that it's taken this long. I was just going to add that real quickly, that one thing that might be going on here is that she, she's acknowledging how explosive uh, her, the, the case is. I mean, it, there has to be some sort of calculation going on behind the scenes about how they're going to handle this What's going to happen? I mean, it's one county, you know, DA, um, you know, taking on the former president who's only seems his power seems to only be growing as, as the days go by. And it's not any small thing um, t- taking him on um, on something like this. So maybe it's just been a matter of trying to get their ducks in a row uh, and figure out a, a plan for how they're going to do this, because the backlash, as you can imagine, is going to be just enormous. Greg, can I ask, I mean, how, how unusual would charges be in a case like this? I mean, e- even in local elections, I would think it would be rare to bring charges of election fraud or election interference even against a local candidate. Yes. And and once again, uh, and this goes back, it's a similar theme that Eric and I have been you know, dealing with in the investigations in New York is how much of this is fraudulent intent. Can you prove that, um, you know, Trump will claim in this case that he actually believed there was election fraud and therefore, you know, he urged the secretary of state to do his job. <laughs> uh, it is, it is extraordinary. It's not, it's not extraordinary for cases involving small amounts of votes and someone showing up with a bag or someone doing some, you know, overly aggressive canvassing, uh, et cetera, at a, at a small number level. But this, from a sitting president of the United States, yes, this is, like the, like the investigations in New York, this, these are all extraordinary cases. Finally, um, you know, and this is to, to anyone who wants to answer it, but um, we've all covered courts for quite some time. And when you're a defendant, uh, it's not just about whether the facts are on your side. You also need the resources to be able to fight your case. And I'm wondering if, Trump, the former president, is in so much legal jeopardy that the legal, the resources to pay legal fees to fight all of these cases is going to become an issue, and the lack of resources is going to force him to settle some of these matters that he would have otherwise preferred to to fight. Do you think that's going to become an issue, or does he have the resources to keep going as long as he wants on all of these fronts? I, I don't think so. I, I don't think it's going to be an issue. I think he's going to find that money one way or another. He has the backing of tens of millions of uh, MAGA voters in this country who seem to be willing to throw money at him. Um, I, I think it was widely reported that he had a, a huge war chest of like well over $100 million. No, but I, I agree with Eric. Uh, it, there's no lack of financial resources for especially these legal uh, battles. And certainly with criminal ones, there's no incentive, there's no settlement. It's sort of, he's trying to avoid criminal charges in New York and Atlanta. Uh, and I think on principle, he would fight the attorney general's office as he has. This is, this is not a new tactic. He has like a multi-decade career of, you know, basically paying lawyers to, you know, slow down, gum up, challenge any sort of 
adversarial legal action he's faced. So, you know, I, I, I see, and I think it's actually helped him in this case. It's dragged out the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation and probably the Attorney General's up here as well. All right. Well, that was Eric Larson, Greg Farrell, and Amanda Icone uh, speaking with us about the former president and his legal fights. That'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editors are Cheryl Sines and Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. That's B as in, by the way, if you're interested in the kind of stuff Amanda was talking about, check out our sister podcast, Talking Tax. It is really fantastic. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week. You don't need to be a judge to be interested in our nation's laws and legal institutions. Just like you don't need to have a law degree to be curious about the inner workings of courts, law firms, and law schools. That's where we come in. My name's Adam Allington, and I'm the host of Uncommon Law, a podcast from the Bloomberg Industry Group. Uncommon Law is where public policy, storytelling, and the law are combined. We explore big topics ranging from tech policy to free speech to race and gender diversity. So please give us a listen. You can subscribe and download today. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much.